The breaking of the world that was. The great victory of the Chaos Gods. The end times. That forgotten epoch has many names. Only the gods of yore and the inhuman Slan remember it vividly, and the truth of its demise is buried in the dust of history. This is Save vs. Rant. Save versus Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are starting our two-part series on Warhammer. Warhammer is arguably the most popular tabletop war game in existence and is a long-standing franchise now that has existed for barely shorter than I have. Like this, I was born in April of the same year that it came out. So it's been around for a while. So I really wanted to talk about Warhammer because my introduction into gaming outside of the traditional family board game night games was through Warhammer. I went to the hobby shop in my hometown and I went in there and there were all these people standing at these huge tables covered in in terrain with these huge armies of cool fantasy guys pushing them around, rolling giant handfuls of dice. And I looked and went... Oh yeah, I want to do that. And so I slowly started collecting miniatures for it, and I got into it, and it was a solid two years after I started playing Warhammer when I first started playing Dungeons & Dragons. Which is pretty great, actually, because it's an interesting microcosm of how Dungeons & Dragons came into being, because war games like Warhammer, but obviously prior to Warhammer, were the major inspiration for Dungeons & Dragons. It was all people playing these war games and eventually deciding that they wanted specific characters to be important heroes, and then from there branching off into games that were just about those important heroes. So it's a really cool parallel, actually, and I think that it's a a neat way of talking about this. But uh, Warhammer is a hobby in and of itself. You could do just Warhammer, much the same way that you can do just D&D, but Warhammer has a lot more built-in hobby interest, in my opinion. So we are excited to be discussing this. You could do a whole podcast on just Warhammer, and I'm sure there are a bunch of whole podcasts, but we'd really like to touch on this because it's an important touchstone of tabletop gaming. So, before we get into the hobby aspect of Warhammer, we really should give a brief history of Warhammer and where it came from. And whenever we talk about Warhammer, we have to talk about Games Workshop. Games Workshop is an English company that was founded in 1975. Originally, they were making just wooden boards for games like Backgammon, Chess, Moncala, Nine, Men's Morris, and Go. Later, they became the sole distributor of Dungeons and Dragons in the UK. And after that, they started publishing a gaming magazine, uh, White Dwarf, in 1977. In 1979, they started their own miniatures line, Citadel Minis. And in 1983, the game Warhammer came out. Warhammer, of course, was using the Citadel line of minis. And Warhammer is such an, a weird game. It's it's a fantasy war game, but it's set in its, its own world and it has its own history and it has its own factions. So I, I think we really just have to kind of talk about the world setting of Warhammer before we can even go into everything surrounding it. 
Right, so there are the three major branches of Warhammer. Today we're going to talk primarily about Warhammer Fantasy and a little bit about Age of Sigmar. We're not really going to touch on 40k much today, right? We agreed on that? Yeah, 40k is weird. It's a sci-fi miniatures game, but it also has space orcs. Yeah, I think I think it might warrant its own episode at some point, but right now we're just talking about Warhammer, Fantasy, and Age of Sigmar. 40k is, of course, adjacent to that, but it's the mad, super futuristic setting, and it's it's pretty crazy. Warhammer Fantasy, though, uh, is set in a Earth-style world, much the same distribution of continents, and also, incidentally, a similar distribution of culture throughout. Obviously, there's the Western European portion, which is going to be the most recognizably fantasy part of the setting, with Britonia representing sort of medieval France and England during the chivalric period. The Empire is the Empire of Man, which is the humans and their uh, large machinations across the face of the world trying to conquer it all in the name of their uh, emperor. The elves are elves, and the dwarves, for the most part, are dwarves. Dwarvy dwarves, elfy elves. There, there are a few distinctions that make them interesting outside of standard Tolkien-esque fantasy, but they do draw most of their inspiration from that. I do love the fact that the dwarves have this obsession with grudges. Dwarves always had long memory and grudges in, like, Tolkien and stuff, but in Warhammer, they have, like, a book of grudges where they write down stuff they're angry angry about and just fume about it forever. I really relate to that. That that speaks to me. (laughs) Beyond those, they have a number of different armies. They have undead. They have two different flavors of undead. The, The vampire counts and the tomb kings, but that's basically as stereotypical as you can get. Pretty uh, self-explanatory. Obviously, vampire counts are like Count Dracula with, like, spooky, scary skeletons and witches and stuff. And then Tomb Kings are the Mummy Returns. And that's pretty much it. But beyond that, they have some actual unique races and armies that we want to talk about. So, first one that we want to talk about in depth is Orcs and Goblins. Everyone's done Orcs and Goblins. What the heck difference does it make that they have Orcs and Goblins? Well, everyone knows that orcs and goblins are groups of monsters that live together, and of course they worship their their orc gods, and they all have green skin, and they all eat mushrooms, and... Actually, wait, no, the the orc gods, the green skins, and being mushroom eaters are all from Warhammer. Yeah, aren't they actually mushrooms in the Warhammer setting? Like, the orcs are sort of this strange, pseudo-monstrous, like, somewhere between mammals and fungus or something like that yeah they spawn by budding and they slowly grow over time and eventually they become big and powerful um they also use psychedelic mushrooms to power their magic which is very entertaining to me But what I want to emphasize about this is that our vision of orcs and goblins as green-skinned monsters comes specifically from Warhammer, arguably from Warcraft, which was intended as a licensed Warhammer game, little tidbit right there, but... Warhammer itself was really the first setting that said that orcs are these green-skinned monsters with protruding heads and this entire look that we now think of as being iconically orcish. Before that, Tolkien's orcs were modified elves that tended to have sallow gray skin or dark black skin and stuff like that and tended to look like 
deformed ape men, whereas these orcs look somewhere between pigs and apes, but with forward protruding heads, which makes one think of predators, because predators tend to have forward heads, and it's only by accidents of evolution that we primates have upright heads. And also, all of these other things about orcs, a lot of that owes to Warhammer specifically, and has just become part of our cultural fantasy zeitgeist. One of the armies that I know that you love a lot, John, is the Skaven. (laughs) And the Skaven are weird and interesting. They're these rat folk who live in tunnels underneath all of civilization, and they bring plagues and pestilence, and they're warped by radioactive star stones, and oh man, they are, they're just horrifying to play against. Yeah, they use uh, all these toxic technologies like sniper rifles that shoot out radioactive pellets that bust through your armor and globes full of poisonous gas and stuff like that. And they, they kind of represent the nasty side of technology and industry with things being created as weapons of war that are particularly brutal and evil and cause extreme pain and violence. And I think it's a neat sort of army to field, not only because I actually really dig rat men as a concept, because I think of rats as being these extremely clever creatures that we tend to look down on and think of as vermin, even though they're smarter as a general rule than things that we keep as pets in general. I mean, some people keep rats as pets because they're awesome, but... Also, they fill this niche of clever monsters that are technologically apt, but also due to things like extremely high birth rates and short lives, tend to view their existence as fleeting and cheap. And I think that that creates an interesting effect. Notably, they're one of the few armies that has a unit that you're allowed to just fire into when they're in melee. Like, they could be fighting another unit and it's like, ah, screw it, we can kill our own guys, it doesn't matter. Most armies have a specific prohibition against that where you can never do it. They just don't care. Life is cheap it doesn't matter. One of the armies that I quite enjoy are the Lizardmen. In Age of Sigmar, they're called the Seraphon, which is a little weird, but I I love how the Lizardmen are almost stereotypically Aztec and Mayan. Mesoamerican, yeah. Uh, Aztec, Mayan, Incan. And they are incredibly powerful mages, incredibly powerful in combat, have a ton of ranged options, and... Well, lizard monsters are cool. We've all seen variations of dudes in armor. We've all seen orcs and goblins before. We've seen elves with their long swords. We've seen zombies rising out of the ground. But lizard men are kind of beyond that. They aren't your standard fantasy race. I really quite enjoy them. Their lore is interesting and is often uh, a takeoff of the founding of the Americas, painting the Lizardmen as the good guys, whereas we're often taught that the colonists were the good guys, which is really kind of screwed up. Yeah, extremely screwed up. What I like about the lizard folk, especially though, is that their lore is really unique to them. I mean, it'd be easy to do like a cop out and just say, you know, they're lizard folk, whatever. But they have this whole history where all of their slan priests are now these unique beings. No more are being hatched. So every slan priest that exists is this unique, special, ancient being who's existed since nearly the dawn of time and mostly spends their time 
time in meditation. In fact, if I remember correctly, their lore is that they were all in meditation. They were just in this like stasis of meditation until all the other people came over to their lands and just started making noise and woke them up. They have a connection to sort of a Cthulhu-esque old god sort of thing, but with more of a passive neutral attitude than the open malevolence of the outer gods in the Call of Cthulhu series. And in general have an interesting dynamic within the casts of their society with like the large Saurian dudes who act as protectors and fight to achieve honor and the smaller skinks that act as skirmishers and make up the bulk of their society and then of course the revered slam priests who literally don't even walk uh, they're either carried on a palanquin or they levitate their own palanquins in some cases right I seem to recall mm-hmm. yeah which, which of course is always a cool image it's I guess kind of overused lately because of a lot of series that do this but I've always loved the idea of like psychic characters who just lift themselves purely and move purely with the power of their mind it's a really powerful image to me and something that to me says dark old magic and someone who is so powerful that they replace all of their mundane activities with just magical variants on it out of convenience So, the army that we really need to talk about the most, probably the most well-known of the Warhammer armies, is Chaos. Chaos is overrun with demons, a bunch of demons coming from the realm of Chaos, and demons of Chaos are ruled by four dark gods. You have Korn, the blood god, the god of war. Also the god of impassioned activity, where you are moved to passion by, say, an insult or something like that. Which is one of the insidious things about the chaos gods, is they all have this crossover where they represent something unambiguously evil and something very mundane. Then there's Nurgle, the god of plague and destruction. And growth and old age and development. Then there's Slanish, the god of hedonistic tendencies. Also, uh, you know, just pleasure and love, too. And then there's Zinch, the god of corrupting magic. And planning. Like, do you plan something? That's, that's Zinch. And these are interesting and unique figures. Oftentimes you'll get just Satan analogs when you're running, uh, when, when you're running into demons. Sometimes you'll get some of the different names for, for Satan. You'll get Asmodeus, you'll get... Iblis. Beelzebub and Baal, all sorts of them. And these are not offshoots of Satan. They are kind of their own thing. Yeah, it's not a Western devil. They're their own unique evil entities. And as a bonus, as I already mentioned, they all represent not only this unambiguous force of evil, but also these mundane aspects of everyday life. And it's because of that that their incursions are so insidious, because nobody thinks, you know, I am moving down the course of being a servant of Zinch when they start planning out every day's activity and trying to meticulously develop the perfect schedule so that they adhere to all the activities or no one thinks in falling in love I am slowly edging my way into Slanesh's web because we don't think about that we don't think that we are introducing chaos and disorder to our lives when we act on our passions but within the context of Warhammer That is the exact case. Everything we do that introduces chaos and disorder into our lives and creates ways for us to try to control these aspects of our passions also opens the way for these chaos gods. 
gods. And it's why it's such a grim, dark world, why everything is so terrible and difficult to cope with, is largely because these demons are an insidious force in this world. They are something that is ever-present. And then, of course, there's all the offshoot gods that also interact with the demons. Like, the orcs have their gods, Gork and Mork. Gork is a, I believe, what, stompy but clever, while Mork is clever but stompy? Something like that. Right, so one of them is obviously the god of the big orcs, and the other one is the god of the small goblins. And orcs are, of course, just massive powerhouses of death. And goblins, meanwhile, are these much smaller things that have to exist on cleverness, because otherwise they're doomed. So, in a sense, it's a non-homogenous fantasy saying, which I always like, you know, where there are these different entities that are of supreme power, but they're not all locked into a single pantheon. They all interact from within their own existence. And that's kind of how the real world works with religion as well, is that we have these pockets of different religions throughout the world, and they don't all fit into the same box. You can't put Buddhism in a Christianity or Islamic box. You can only interact with them between them. And I think that that creates a more cohesive fantasy setting when you have those interactions be separate things. So, up until now, we've been talking about the old world. We've been talking about Warhammer fantasy. Well, Warhammer is now in the Age of Sigmar. The old world was destroyed. Chaos took over and completely wiped it all out. Well, it has now been shattered into eight different realms of mortals. They are the realm of light, the realm of metal, the realm of death, the realm of life, the realm of heaven, the realm of shadow, the realm of fire, and the realm of beasts. Incidentally, those are the eight lores of magic in the original Warhammer fantasy setting. Wizards within the High Elven and mortal societies primarily, and a few of the other factions had some access to this here and there, but in general those two factions had access to these eight winds of magic that were specifically the power behind their wizards, and it was another interesting part of the setting in that it meant that these characters had access to these very unique ways of shaping the world. I especially take interest in the fact that there's like metal and shadow among more traditional elements like uh, fire. I like that these mortal realms have been split up and so when you're fighting a battle now you are now fighting in the realm of fire and so you have new effects that are affecting the battle just because you're in the realm of fire and so it could be the same battle between lizard men and skaven but it can be completely different based entirely on where we are having the battle and all of that is interesting and new and fun and frankly it's just kind of a way of having fun with the miniatures that's kind of the hobby aspect of this game. I've said it before and I'll say it again. A big part of Warhammer is just putting out all your miniatures to show them off and then rolling dice to decide what order you put them back in, which is a great game, honestly. It's big part of the hobby is being able to show off these aspects. And I think that that's one of the things that sets it apart from other large big umbrella hobby aspects like D&D where you can absolutely have miniatures but they're optional. With Warhammer, the expectation is that you are going to have an all-in-one hobby. And in so saying, it's worth mentioning that the hobby aspect is 
actually quite brilliant. So, let's talk about the miniatures. I know we had a full episode about miniatures last season, and I know that we talked a bit about Citadel's miniatures, but I think that we really need to go into the nitty-gritty about what makes Citadel miniatures what they are. They're high-quality miniatures. I mean, that's really the start and finish of it. They're high-quality miniatures meant to be assembled en masse for large armies, and that makes them distinct from pretty much every other miniature you could expect. Most D&D miniatures are meant to be assembled as a single miniature that you're going to use to play your character, or a small group of miniatures that you're using to run an encounter, but usually you'll have, like, Orc with Spear, Orc with Sword and Shield, Orc with Battle Axe, you know, just a collection of orcs and then, you know, whatever. But with Warhammer miniatures, there's an emphasis on having these units of cohesive-looking characters that are fighting synchronously the way that combat would have taken place in a more historic fantasy era, something that you would expect to see on a medieval battlefield, like formations of pikemen and archers. And as a result, the expectation is that there will be variations within the miniatures, but largely that they'll be uniform, and that is a unique thing about the design features of these miniatures. Now, we can't really talk about the miniatures without talking about the elephant in the room, the price point. Warhammer is an expensive hobby. Just the core book alone, which I have sitting in front of me, costs $60. I can't play the game with just this rulebook. Well, I could play a facsimile of it with cut-out bits of uh, cardboard playing poor hammer style, but we'll talk about that more uh, in the next episode. The rulebook alone is $60. Then you need to get all the miniatures. John, you have some miniatures sitting in front of you. How many miniatures are there? There are 10 Citadel miniatures in here. That's nine uh, standard archers and one unit leader archer. All right, that's not too bad. How much did that box cost? $60. That comes out to being six bucks a mini. That's Kind of expensive. Close to about twice as expensive as similarly sized Reaper miniatures. But once again, there are a few things that set these miniatures apart. First and foremost is that in a lot of cases with Warhammer miniatures, what you'll have in order to give you that simultaneously cohesive unit look with the sort of customization you expect to see in miniatures is that in a lot of cases they'll have, say, four different sculpts of heads, and then four different sculpts of torsos, four different sculpts of legs, and they're largely interchangeable. And that allows you, just between those three things, to have 52 different designs, I think? Sure, that sounds about right. Why not? Yeah, don't check my math, but let's say you can make 52 different miniatures with that. Uh, That gives you a lot of options of how to assemble these, and it gives you a unit that looks uniform, like a bunch of guys who got together and were given uniforms and were issued weapons and were told, this is how you fight, but at the same time, it doesn't turn it into this thing where there's too much disarray and the units lose their cohesion, but also they don't all look exactly the same. There are some differences. I know in some older editions of Warhammer, there were a few units where every single unit, by its nature, looked kind of the same. Very close thereunto. I seem to recall the Bretonian archers being specifically a bad example for this reason, because they tended to look extremely alike. But in general, the major points of customization are going to be the color schemes that you choose for the miniatures, which will typically be basing on either the expectations 
limitations of the unit that you're building or some specific color scheme you're looking for. I love the fact that they include the colors on the box. They tell you what colors you're going to be using to make these miniatures. It's a helpful thing. I always think of it in like a Bob Ross voice, like at the beginning, like, okay, for this one, we're going to need Xandor Dust, Reichland Flesh Color, Liberator Gold, Teclan Blue, and Lithium Blue. So it's a great way of giving you exactly what you need in order to create the unit as it's presented. But then if you look in the book, you know, you, you always have these options for how to display your unit, especially if you're going through the book for the specific army that you have, because a lot of times they'll be like, this is this famous unit within the Warhammer world, and this famous unit, and you can do color schemes based on that. And a lot of people create their own chapters or regiments or battalions within the Warhammer world so that they can have a truly unique unit that still fits into the world. It's an interesting hobby, partially based on that level of customization, the fact that you can slip your own information into the lore. One of the things that I like about the Warhammer miniatures is once you have your unit assembled, you'll often have a bunch of extra pieces and parts left over. And you can save those for future models to do what is known as kit bashing, where you take pieces from different model kits and put them onto the new model to really customize them. As an extra bonus, you can, of course, use outside materials to make your unit truly unique. I mean, the obvious choices are like flocking and stuff like that, where you give a base the appearance of having grass or sand or whatever is appropriate to the train you're dealing with. But on top of that, there's been some truly incredible customization. I know we weren't planning on talking about Warhammer 40k, but I gotta say, everyone should Google Mr. Potato Head Stompa. It's an orc unit from the 40k world, and it looks like a big stompy robot, and there are several people who have done builds of these using a Mr. Potato Head, and it looks delightful. It is one of the most fun modifications I've ever seen. And beyond that, I mean, people will mix and match miniatures, uh, which of course brings me to kind of an uncomfortable topic that I feel we really should address. That's the gray and black markets of miniatures, especially Warhammer miniatures. So with Warhammer miniatures, there's a number of companies who have gone out and produced miniatures that are usable as Warhammer miniatures, but they aren't the actual Citadel miniatures. They're, they're just distinct enough from them to be different and will add some life and flavor to your units and possibly for a cheaper price, fill out the ranks. Right. And the ethics of that are gray. It's really hard to say that you shouldn't be allowed to use whatever parts you want with whatever game you want. Obviously in a tournament setting it might be frowned upon more solidly, but when it comes down to it, making a game yours is part of playing the game, and it's hard to argue with any game whatsoever that we are bound by the components that the company specifically wants us to use. I mean, a lot of people upgrade their Catan components to have more impressive or expensive resource tokens, things like that. So that's that's completely fine. In a sense, I feel that doing this with Warhammer is also probably okay. I really have some thoughts about that, but what's not okay is what's called remolding, which is where you create a cast of a Warhammer miniature and then pour your own resin mold into it or something to make an identical counterfeit miniature. And 
while on the surface, this doesn't seem like it's hurting anyone. And I suppose that I wouldn't be too upset if I found out someone did this as a backup when they were doing some very clever kit bash with their miniature and afraid of destroying it. But at the end of the day, part of what drives the cost of these miniatures is not just the export tax, and it's not just the cost of materials, but also the cost of sculpting the miniature. Someone put work into that. There's effort that goes into sculpting, designing, and mass producing these miniatures and when we cut out that aspect of it and just break it down to well i have parts i can make my own that cheapens it and damages the hobby in a meaningful way and i know that historically games workshop has seemed really zealous about enforcing their ips and there's two reasons for that the one is of course that they're about making money every company is but the other is that if you don't zealously enforce your ips a judge with a bug up his butt is going to make a ruling that you're not enforcing your IPs and anyone can make knockoffs whenever they want. So it's understandable and I am never excited to see companies getting overzealous with their fans who are doing harmless things that might technically infringe on their IPs but things like recasting are unambiguously a bad thing not only for the company but for gaming in general because when these things become unprofitable people don't make them. People don't create games that don't sell and unfortunately that means that when the prices are high we have to honor those high prices and recognize where they come from. Anyway, that's my rant about remodeling and recasting and such, and I'm, I'm just going to move on now. We've said our piece. We don't have a lot of time left, but we do want to touch real quickly on one of the great things about the hobby aspect of Warhammer is after you have assembled the units together, you can often display them on gorgeous, wonderful terrain. And the model train industry has been making great looking terrain for years and years and years. You can go into almost any hobby store and pick up model train bits and pieces, little trees here, little people there, and add it to a great terrain feature that you can play that you can use to present these models on. And even better, you can, you can put them onto the board as part of the terrain of the combat for the game. Right, and that'll add interest to the field. Obviously, a battle between two armies on a completely empty field can be an exciting battle, absolutely. But in my opinion, a more exciting battle is when that field is cluttered with clusters of trees and rivers and other obstacles that the armies have to circumnavigate in order to successfully clash with one another. And I think that having these miniature terrains in place presents that. On top of that, there's all sorts of magical terrain and special terrain that might be deployed on a battlefield. And I believe Games Workshop, just in like the last few years, I want to say five years, but please don't quote me on that, started producing their own specific line of terrain, which they hadn't done before. They just directed players to the model train industry as a place to get the equipment and they sold some things like i seem to remember like games workshop licensed like foam cutters and stuff like that for it but as a general rule most of the train you were buying was going to be coming from your regular hobby store and your model train stuff and you could still do that and i encourage it you should still do that because it's a great way to expand your repertoire and your available materials but it's really nice to see companies branching out into additional things like that it always adds additional interest and makes it a much cooler and more 
cohesive whole, especially when the company is producing their own material like this. It's very nice to see that sort of thing and to see companies thriving in that way. So that has been our look at the hobby aspect of Warhammer. Really, we needed this whole episode to talk about the world around Warhammer before we can even get into the game, because there's so much to it. There's so much that we have not even talked about. Right, but... On our next episode, we're going to be discussing specifically the game mechanics, largely of Age of Sigmar, but we will also segue a little bit into Warhammer Fantasy and maybe a touch into Warhammer 40k as appropriate. But mostly, we're going to focus on the newest edition of the game, Age of Sigmar, and how since its release, it's really come into its own and not only changed the way we play Warhammer, but changed the way we played Age of Sigmar, which itself has been an ongoing, evolving process. And we hope you'll stay tuned for it. So once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Blood for the Blood God. Skulls for the Skull Throne. Save versus Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.